0: Welcome to Walter Edgert's Journal. With me in the studio today is Dr. Brent Morris from USCB, who is the director for the Institute for the Study of the Reconstruction Era, chairman of the History Department, director of the Honors Program, and about five other titles. In between, he teaches American history and South Carolina history. So, Brent, welcome back to the Journal. Thanks for having me back, Walter. Reconstruction conjures up all sorts of images among historians, among the general public, and it's frequently a term that's sometimes misused, misunderstood, which I think is what Henry Louis Gates is trying to get across on a broader audience is, what was Reconstruction all about?
1: It was about a lot of things. It it depends on who you ask, where you ask them, when you ask them the question. Uh, Reconstruction is one of those histories that has had a fraught history of its own, really, from from the moment the Civil War ended to the present day, we're still working as scholars and as a, as a public, generally, to to come to terms with this era to figure out just exactly what it meant, what the repercussions have been, um, and, and what its place is, its appropriate place is, in the grand narrative of American history.
0: I guess a lot of people don't understand why it's natural for there to be a Reconstruction Institute at at Beaufort, but when I was in graduate school, there was a wonderful book written by Dr. Willie Lee Rose Mm -hmm. called Rehearsal for Reconstruction, and that happened in Beaufort County and the Sea
1: Islands. Right, right in my backyard, in fact. Uh, Yeah, Beaufort was, uh, was ground zero for Reconstruction. It was, um, it was November the 7th of 1861, the Battle, Battle of Port Royal Sound, that was some of the first territory to be retaken by the United States. And um, Beaufort area, the Beaufort district, but specifically around Hilton Head Island and Beaufort and um, St. Helena Island became essentially this reconstruction rehearsal. It was the, the first place in the former Confederacy that uh, free labor ideology was put into place, that former slaves were given the chance to work for wages, that education was attempted to, um, to be brought to as many of the freedmen as possible. Uh, so starting really in November of 1861, in Beaufort, uh, a lot of the ideas and the, uh, the things that will develop in the United States as a whole later on started in Beaufort. And a lot of people have made the argument that, in fact, Reconstruction lasts longer in Beaufort than anywhere else. It was this perfect uh, coming together of just the right type of population. It was a a large African-American majority that allowed the Reconstruction Republican governments to to hold on in Beaufort a lot longer than they did in other places, well into the early 20th century. All right.
0: The the Union Army and Navy take Beaufort in 1861. Mm -hmm. But who's really running Reconstruction? It's, it's not the government, it's not private enterprise, it's kind of a, a mixture, isn't
1: it? It's a, that's exactly what it is. The, the government, of course, comes in in the form of the Navy, the, the largest squadron ever assembled, and they take um, Port Royal Sound, and it just so happens that when the Navy shows up, the, uh, the planters of the region took off. They, they call it the Great Skedaddle. They took off towards the mainland. It's not really clear if they were worried more about the Yankees coming or more about what the, the thousands of enslaved people were going to do once they had the support of the United States Navy. Uh, so the, with the planters out of the way, there were a lot of different people that kind of descended on the Beaufort area. There was, of course, the military. Uh, there were government officials who... Um, who saw the value in Buford. There was cotton ready to be picked. It could be um, processed and sold to finance the war effort. But it was also the place where there were, right at the beginning, about 8,000 formerly enslaved people whose masters had, had run off and thousands more, like a magnet, drew, were drawn to Buford. And there was the opportunity there. A lot of people thought um, Secretary of the Treasury Salmon P. Chase was one of the ones who had the best ideas for this. But this could be the, the stage on which the post-Civil War world could be worked out. All the the details could be worked out about what the world could be after the war. So to prove to the world that African-Americans were capable, to prove that they did desire and could actually get an education, to prove that they would work for wages. So early on, Buford became the staging ground for the Reconstruction era, which was to follow the end of the Civil War. And that they would fight. And that they would fight. That was the, the beginning of the enlistment of African-American soldiers, started first in Buford in late 1862. And uh, some of the most able fighting um, fighting groups of, of black soldiers came from the Buford area.
0: Who are these civilians that are coming in, for example, to, to take over education? Mm-hmm. Who, who's going to run the plant? You know, are the plantations going to keep running? You've got this cotton mm-hmm. to pick that, sa- that uh, Secretary of the Treasury Chase wants sold. Mm-hmm. How's all this going to happen?
1: It's a question that didn't have a lot of answers right off the bat, but uh, it's going to be the people that would have picked it anyway, who in a lot of cases end up picking that cotton. So the enslaved people um, found themselves without masters, but not without a job to do. And they were given the task of harvesting this cotton and getting it ready for for sale. There were some... Some rough points. You know, the the freedmen did not. Well, they weren't quite freedmen yet at this point. They were considered contrabands. And that's that's a term I'll come back to in just a bit. But uh, they weren't free. They weren't enslaved. There was cotton to be had. And the government, first and foremost, wanted that cotton to be picked and wanted it to be sold. Uh, the freedmen did not necessarily want to go back to doing the same labor that they had been doing for their whole lives and their parents' entire lives back generations. Uh, so there was some, some give and take. There was some negotiation about what the labor system was going to be. What it, was it going to be working by the task, as they had done earlier, as, as enslaved people, or was it going to be for wages? Once those details were worked out, a lot of African Americans went back to doing essentially the same job that they had done before, but sometimes they might take their family out of the field. The wife might not go out and pick the cotton like she would have before. Um, The head of the household would have a little bit more say in when the children or the wife or whoever went out to work. Uh, So the, the picking of the cotton was one thing. The rest of the Port Royal experiment was something altogether different. So there were... Um, dozens and hundreds across the South of people interested philanthropists from the North who came down and wanted to not only you know, help out the process of funding the war effort, but to, to make it a little bit something more substantial, to educate the freedmen. And uh, former slaves to a person, You know, whether in South Carolina or anywhere else, they understood the value of education, they saw how education was one of the paths to power that their masters had always wielded, and they understood to, to, as well that if they could get that sort of education, it would be a good first step towards real and full freedom. So you have missionaries from the American Missionary Association, different uh, religious groups, and other philanthropists who get on ships, sail down from places like New York and Philadelphia, and uh, proceed to try to begin schools and educate freedmen. And they're called initially, derisively, by a lot of the soldiers here, the Gideonites, and or the Gids for short and they take that as a badge of pride some of the first schools for former slaves are established by these Gideonites and um you know continued well into the 20th century the Penn School on St. Helena Island was established in 1862 and was a functioning school until the 1940s
0: well some of the Gideonites though decided it was nice to live
1: in the big house yeah the um, the the Penn School was originally organized at the Oaks Plantation on St. Helena Island there was, a, there was an uncomfortable sense of um, paternalism in a lot of cases by the giddy knights who came down. They never forgot where they came from. Uh, there were some African-American teachers who came from the north. Uh, Charlotte Fortin from Philadelphia is one of the, the foremost, uh, most well-known of these teachers. But there was this separation between the, 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 the well-wishing philanthropists who came down and the their subjects or their pupils who they were going to see in the classrooms. Well, these were, in a lot of cases, people that had the right motivations at heart. A lot of these white missionary teachers came down to the South and they never really, they'd never encountered an enslaved person before. And they may not have actually known personally any African-Americans. So this was their, their first experience to a whole brand new world. And, and you can read this in some of their letters that they would send home. I mean, the, the descriptions of the freedmen and their, the scholars that are in the classrooms are, they almost read like um, anthropological studies. And it, it's almost like they're describing a foreign people. They come in a lot of cases to love the students that are in their classrooms. They do a really good job of educating them. The literacy rate among South Carolina formerly enslaved people goes from, you know, probably less than 5 percent to at the end of Reconstruction to about 30, 35 percent. And it all gets these uh, the beginnings in these Freedmen schools that really start on the Sea Islands
0: that in itself is is an incredible statistic because the education level of the free white population wasn't much better than that
1: no it wasn't and and this was this was something that did not go unnoticed by the the free people that you know their literacy rate was sometimes more than the people that lived just down the road these these poor white farmers
0: okay what about getting back to what contraband you mentioned that term mm-hmm. now we think about smuggling you you know you bring in contraband liquor or cigarettes or whatever what is that term mean in the Civil War context?
1: Well, contraband, liquor, and cigarettes, I mean, it deals with a certain type of property. And, and that's the same connotation it had in the Civil War. So essentially what happens is at the beginning of the Civil War, Benjamin Butler is in command of forces at Fortress Monroe in Virginia. And there are um, many, many enslaved people who are surrounding this territory that's early on been taken by the Union. And three enslaved men show up at Fortress Monroe and present themselves to Benjamin Butler and essentially request their freedom. He takes them into the fort. Right on their heels is their master, this, this new newly Confederate master who comes and shows up, knocks on the fort's door. I guess that's what they do. They knock on fort's doors. And uh, they demanded the return of their property, their enslaved people. And, of course, this was ironic because they had just declared that they were no longer a part of the United States, but they were claiming the authority of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 for the return of their enslaved people. And Butler was not having any of that. And um, in a previous life, you know, before the Civil War, Benjamin Butler was a lawyer, and he understood that in the the laws, international laws of war, contraband of war could be claimed by a particular side. So if, for instance, if someone is firing a cannon at you and using it in war and you capture that cannon, you can claim it as contraband of war and keep it. And he knew that Confederates were using their enslaved people not necessarily to fight the war. They weren't putting a weapon in their hands, but they were putting a shovel in their hands and saying, dig this ditch, build this fort, move this, move this uh, dirt from place to place or move this ammunition. So he claimed them as contraband. And he said, from now on, we're going to consider any enslaved person that presents themselves to us as contraband of war. And that was the opening of the door that eventually leads to the Emancipation Proclamation. But um, the way it played out in the Sea Islands was that as soon as the Union Navy shows up, there's eight to 10,000 formerly enslaved people but their legal status is still, still up in the air, still in limbo. And they apply this idea of contraband of war. They're not free. That won't happen until the Emancipation Proclamation, January the 1st of 1863. But they are considered something that's less than enslaved. They're no longer anybody's property. They're this contraband of war. And as such, they can't be returned back to slavery. So essentially it's freedom, but there is a few more degrees towards freedom that they have to go.
0: All right. From the fall of 1861 Onward, the Sea Islands become a magnet for runaway slaves from the Confederate part of South Carolina. Right.
1: They come whenever they can to Beaufort. The town of Mitchellville, actually on Hilton Head Island, becomes the first self-governing freedmen's town. They elect their own officials. They build their own houses. Um, about 3,000 people at the top of its population it is the type of, of magnet that just draws people. As soon as the word of the, of the, of the takeover of the Fort Royal Sound area in November happens, I mean, the the enslaved population knew what was happening because their masters were fully aware. They told them what was going on, tried to, tried to scare them about the coming Yankees. They said, these Yankees are going to take you. They're going to sell you to Cuba. They're going to keep you enslaved. Don't listen to them. Don't believe them. And then they took off. And the formerly enslaved people found out for their own that, no, these people aren't going to sell us. They're actually, they have, for the most part, good intentions for us.
0: Although relations, particularly between the Union Army and the contraband and the freed persons, was always tense in that that district.
1: Yeah, it was tense. Uh, I mentioned Mitchellville, the self-governing town there on Hilton Head Island. The reason that the town of Mitchellville was created... Uh, was because on the territory that was the old Drayton Plantation, the freedmen and the soldiers were, you know, coming into conflict pretty often. There were soldiers who would go into the freedmen's village and steal from them and assault them in different ways. Uh, General Ornsby Mitchell decided and decreed that essentially we're going to create this this totally separate community where African-Americans are going to live. They're going to pick their own leaders. They're going to make their own laws. But we need a little bit of separation there. And, and that was one of the ways that, that freedom was really encouraged.
0: Also, Buford, you, you mentioned the Emancipation Proclamation on January the 1st, 1863. It was first announced in South Carolina at Buford.
1: Right. It was um, the first public reading of the Emancipation Proclamation. It, it was actually the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation because the the final document didn't make it to Buford until, until a little bit later. But January the 1st, 1863, um, it was a, a bright and clear morning, and Friedman called contraband from across the area were just pouring into Beaufort um, because they knew there was going to be this big celebration. Everybody anticipated this important day for months since the preliminary Emancipation uh, Proclamation had been issued. And there was a stage that was built. There were, I think, uh, 10 or 12 oxen, which were barbecued for the people that were going to come. Thousands of freedmen came and gathered to listen to this proclamation be read. And it's a fascinating time period, um, a fascinating day. Um, Thomas Wentworth Higginson writes about it in his uh, his accounts of the day. Charlotte Fortin writes about it. It's in The Atlantic. It's it's big news. And um, this this first day of freedom, I mean, a lot of these people had been considered contrabands up until this point. And now, according to the terms of the Emancipation Proclamation, they are free.
0: How do the occupying forces change in their treatment or interaction with the now freed persons? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the biggest change was probably the um, the provision in the Emancipation Proclamation that allowed African-American soldiers to enlist and fight. From the beginning of the Civil War, African-Americans knew that this was a war that could benefit them and their families. They knew that it was a war to end slavery. Even if, if the white officials wouldn't admit it yet, even if Abraham Lincoln himself wouldn't admit it, they knew that this was the chance to end slavery. Um, early in the war, African-Americans attempted to enlist and were turned back. But they were essentially told, you know, this is a white man's fight. If we need you, we'll come for you. In the Sea Islands, as soon as the Navy shows up and takes the Port Royal Sound area, uh, one of the first things that happens is that officers begin to organize African-American men into black troops. There's a group of black soldiers that are organized in 1862 um, in anticipation of the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, It's not legal yet because Abraham Lincoln is, is still sort of dragging his feet and not willing to go to the lengths of actually arming black soldiers and creating official regiments because he doesn't want to alienate the border states. But... January the 1st of 1863, that is one of the provisions of the Emancipation Proclamation, which allows ultimately over 180,000 African-American men to sign up and fight in the Civil War. So the first African-American regiments that are organized are dissolved because there's no money for them and there's nobody that can actually officially bring them into battle. As soon as the Emancipation Proclamation is in place, the first South Carolina volunteers are reorganized. They become the 33rd USCT and go off and fight USC US Colored Troops. Okay, Um, go off and fight illustriously, you know, in 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 very uh, different places in the South.
0: Brent, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Brent Morris of USC Beaufort about Reconstruction in South Carolina and the American South okay, the war is over, 1865, spring 1865, Reconstruction, what's going to happen? Does anybody
1: know? (laughs) Everybody knows and nobody knows all at the same time. Um, During the war, Abraham Lincoln in 1863 started tossing around ideas for what a Reconstruction might look like. And in Lincoln's initial plan, once 10% of the voting population of the former Confederate states took a loyalty oath then the door would be open for readmission after the war was over. And uh, radical Republicans in Congress, they balked at that and they said, this is nowhere near strenuous enough. We need to actually have more hoops to jump through, more steps, more essentially more punishment for these former Confederate states to come back and rejoin the Union. Um, There was a congressional bill that was proposed right at the end of the war, um, actually in 1864, the Wade Davis bill that had more teeth, but Lincoln didn't veto it, but he let the bill expire. It was called the pocket veto. He put the bill in his pocket, and when Congress went out of session, it expired. Um, When the war ended, nobody really knew what the next plan was, what the next step was, because Lincoln had kept his plans kind of close to the chest. And then within days of Robert E. Lee surrendering his army to Ulysses S. Grant, Lincoln's assassinated. So everything is sort of thrown into disarray at that point. And Lincoln's vice president, Andrew Johnson, takes over the presidency, of course, and Johnson has his own plans for Reconstruction, and initially, a lot of radical Republicans, a lot of folks in the North, thought that Johnson Johnson was their man.
0: Why did the radicals think Johnson
1: was their man? Johnson was um, he was a small farmer. He was a tradesman. He was not one of these elites from the South. He was from Tennessee, but when Tennessee seceded, he did he kept his seat in the Senate and remained loyal to the Union, and. He had owned five slaves before the Civil War, but there was this sense of animosity that Johnson always had towards the elites of the South. And people in the North and radical Republicans thought, well, this is this is our guy because he stated explicitly, I'm going to do what I can to weaken the elites of the South. I'm going to break up their land holdings. I'm going to bring them down a notch or two. But Johnson had this this weird correlation between the large plantation owners, the planters, and the slaves themselves. And Johnson believed that it was the planters and the slaves that had somehow conspired to keep down the small white farmers in the South, which was completely wrong. And, and well, a lot of scholars had looked at it the opposite way and said it was it was in fact the, the small planters and the slaves that had more in common. But Johnson begins to go out of his way to not necessarily even reconstruct the United States, but he calls it restoration rather than reconstruction. The requirements that he sets out for the former, former Confederate states to be readmitted back into the Union are really without too much consequence. And in a, a weird sort of the way that the, the congressional calendar worked at that point, from the time that Congress went out of session, right after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, to when they came back into session, it was over a year. And Johnson attempted to bring the former Confederate states back into the Union, fully readmitted as, as states on equal standing with anyone else, by the time Congress would come back into session in 1865. He required a loyalty oath, disfranchised some high-ranking former Confederate officials, but allowed sort of a loophole for them to ask for a presidential pardon to be able to vote and hold office again. And anyone that owed, I think, owned more than $20,000 in property had to ask for a special pardon as well. But besides that and ratifying the 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery, there wasn't too much else that Johnson asked for these Southern states to be readmitted back into the Union. And they took that and ran with it. Every single former Confederate state took him up on his offer. They were ready for readmission. They had um, delegates lined up, ready to take their seats in Congress when they came back into session, and did everything they could. And they had also passed the Black code Absolutely, that's what they were. They were doing everything they could to try to re, not reinstitute slavery because that was now illegal, but to reinstitute some sort of of social structure that kept African Americans as laborers on the bottom of society. So. The black codes that you're referring to, they, these were laws that just about every southern state passed right in the wake of the Civil War. And in some cases, they essentially took the sla- the, either the slave code or the laws that applied specifically to free African-Americans before the war and just slightly tweaked them. So you end up with laws that required all African-Americans to be able to prove their active employment. If you were stopped on the street and couldn't prove that you were working for somebody, you might be thrown in jail for vagrancy. African Americans couldn't have weapons, Um, they couldn't do particular jobs, you know, skilled trades without having to pay a a certain amount of money, having to pay a tax. Uh, Mobility was limited. They really did do everything they could to pass a special type of law to restrict African Americans. Now, this did not go unnoticed in the North. The North was just infuriated at how unrepentant the South seemed to be. They were passing laws essentially to try to reinstitute slavery, if by another name. So in South Carolina, for instance, Daniel Sickles, um, who was the general in charge of of the military occupation of South Carolina, immediately declares these null and void. And Congress realizes that Johnson's plan is not going to work, not nearly strenuous enough. And they begin the process of a different step in Reconstruction, different stage, Congressional Reconstruction. And initially, it wasn't quite as radical as it would become, but it was going to be very different than Johnson's.
0: What happened to these would-be senators and members of the House of Representatives from Alabama and South Carolina when they got to Washington? What happened?
1: They were turned right back around and sent home. How? Wow. <laughs> Congress has the ability, the unique ability, to determine the qualifications and the suitability of its members. And when they showed up, and in a lot of cases, they were the same people who had sat in those exact same seats before the Civil War – um, Georgia, for instance, sent Alexander Stevens, who had just a couple of months before been the vice president of the Confederacy.
0: So representatives from South Carolina, everywhere else, show up. They're not admitted. Then what does Congress do?
1: Congress puts into place its own program for Reconstruction. And they do this while all the time battling with Andrew Johnson. Johnson, until the day he was nominated to run with Abraham Lincoln on the presidential ticket, was a Democrat. He was a Southern Democrat. And now he was essentially a Republican, but in, in ideology was not. So you have Republicans in Congress battling political battles with the president of the United States. The president vetoes all sorts of bills. Congress every time overrides the president. It's just a back and forth, a back and forth. Congress legislates, the president vetoes and they override vetoes. Johnson is, is later on impeached by Congress and put on trial in the Senate. And he, um, he is impeached, but he is not removed from office by one vote. Um, But it's it's a battle over the direction of the country going forward after Johnson becomes president. Is it going to be a country where, as Johnson might want, the southern states are brought back into the union pretty easily and without too many more restrictions than had been opposed to them beside the 13th Amendment? Or is it going to be the program that radicals in Congress want to put into place that actually extends citizenship rights to African-Americans, allows them to vote and to become functioning equal members of society?
0: We're using the term radical, and I think even within the Republican Party in Reconstruction, we need to define that term. Mm.
1: So there's a whole wide range of ideological leanings even within the Republican Party. The Democrats were the conservatives. They were the party of um, the antebellum era that that had attempted to, that had actually gone to war to try to protect slavery and essentially white supremacy. Um, the Republicans were, it was a, a hodgepodge party that, that essentially came together in 1854 to oppose the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which, which was all about extending slavery into the territories. But the Republican Party, from its beginnings, was all about not necessarily ending slavery, but stopping the expansion of slavery, which was not a particularly radical position. And the Republican Party maintains that, that difference of ideology into the Civil War and beyond it. Uh, radicals are those that believe in, in some degree of, of egalitarianism. Um, there are on the, the sort of the conservative side of the Republican Party, people who want to uh, create citizens of African-Americans and give them equal opportunities, but not too much else. The radical part of the party, and, and this did not include the president, Abraham Lincoln, when he was a Republican, before he was assassinated. But the radical part of the party was uh, much, much more interested in not just bringing African Americans sort of up to the same level as whites, but uh, fixing some of the problems um, that had caused the, the issues that, that were at debate in Reconstruction in the first place. So extending the vote to African Americans, that was a radical position. Lincoln had suggested that maybe it was a good idea if Southern states wanted to allow black men to vote, but didn't require it the radicals in Congress later on during Reconstruction, that would be one of the requirements for readmission into the Union.
0: So, when is the first Reconstruction
1: Act passed? Uh, this is, it's, it's um, in response to Andrew Johnson, but it's in 1867. And there's a series of, of different Reconstruction Acts, but essentially the Reconstruction Acts together lay out the framework for and the requirements for what the Southern states will have to do to be readmitted into the Union. Um, right off the bat, the first thing they're going to need to do is to, um, to ratify the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which was passed by Congress in 1867. And that was what extended uh, birthright citizenship to anyone born in the United States, essentially overturning the Dred Scott decision from 1857, where the Supreme Court said that African-Americans aren't citizens, never can be citizens. 14th Amendment guaranteed that anybody born or naturalized in the United States would be considered a citizen. Um, So in order for readmission, a state had to ratify that constitutional amendment so that it would become part of the Constitution. Tennessee does, and none of the other southern states, former Confederate states, do. So it's pretty clear that they are dragging their feet. They're about as recalcitrant as they possibly can be. So further Reconstruction acts actually break up the South into military districts. The 10 remaining former Confederate states are broken up into five military districts Uh, South Carolina and North Carolina are the second military district, and they're placed under the command of a military governor. The Reconstruction uh, Acts lay out the duties of that military governor. He's to go out and register all eligible males to vote. Those voters are supposed to vote whether or not they want to have a constitutional convention. A new constitution is going to be a requirement for readmission. So they vote for a constitutional convention. They get together meant to draft a new document. That constitution is to be sent to the people for ratification, the people of the state. And then at that point, they can be readmitted if approved by Congress. Now, in South Carolina, it's, it's a really interesting drama that plays out because the military governor of South Carolina goes around and, and delegates authority to register voters who now include hundreds of thousands of African-Americans who had been enslaved. And white voters decide, well, we're going we're gonna to rig the system here. We're going to go out and do everything we can to, to register to vote. And in order to have a constitutional convention, a majority of registered voters had to vote for it. So white voters go out and register and then stay away from the polls when it comes time to vote on whether to have the convention, thinking that if they just don't show up, then there can't be enough votes to actually have the constitutional convention to draft this new document. And they assumed that enough of the registered black voters would not vote, which they were totally wrong about. <laughs> 85% of black voters showed up to the poll, voted for um, a constitutional convention. And the trick was here that the people who would be delegates to the Constitutional Convention had to have voted for the convention in the first place. Uh Aha. So you end up with a convention that has a majority of its delegates, African Americans, people who a lot of them had been enslaved just a few months before. I mean, it's a fascinating scene. Um, So the Constitutional Convention gets together and they draft a document. It's actually based on um, the uh, Ohio Constitution of 1802. It's not particularly radical. Um, but it does create a system of laws that, that provide for equality amongst everybody, regardless of what their race is.
0: But wasn't the issue that was debated more than anything else in that convention was education?
1: Education was, was the priority, especially among the former enslaved people. Um, and this is South Carolina becomes the state that has the first, uh, first legal mandatory school system um and it's put into place because African Americans understand the value of education and it creates a system of public education that benefits benefits white students benefits African American students the constitution is remarkable in that even though white south carolinians referred to it as the radical document it didn't really look for any sort of affirmative action it just codified in that document equality so it set up this equal system of schooling for African American students that that lasted you know well beyond
0: well in fact an unknown statistic about South Carolina is except for the city schools of Charleston, there was no real public school system of any kind in the state prior to 1860. So we've got education. We've also got honest-to-goodness local government. Counties are are created. Well, the counties were already there, mm. but they're actually given the authority to govern themselves.
1: Right. It's, it's- – what, what Southerners always loved is home rule, but in this case, it was real you know, democratic home rule where the, 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 the leadership class actually represented the demographics. Um, in South Carolina, you, you have just a, a fascinating system whereby this black majority, they have more political power in South Carolina than in any other state during Reconstruction. Um, it's just a little bit south of, I think, 500 African-Americans who uh, serve in some sort of elected office in the state, whether it's a state office or a federal office. It's the only state in the South at any time in Reconstruction where African-Americans make up a majority of the, the House of Representatives in that state. There are African-Americans who hold all sorts of, of state posts from secretary of state, attorney general, all the way up to lieutenant governor. Um, so it's really an era where African-Americans can move into positions of authority, pass laws that that not just benefit themselves, but benefit everybody – and really have the type of government that reflects the demography of the state. This is something that's just absolutely radical for its time.
0: Well, how long does it take for South Carolina to get back into the Union? Because the 15th Amendment comes in here, too.
1: The 15th does. That's um, ratified in 1870. The 15th Amendment guarantees the right to vote uh, regardless of race or previous condition of servitude. Once South Carolina adopts their their new constitution in 1868 and it goes to the people for ratification, which is which is a remarkable change as well. It's not just given to the people as their law. It's sent to them for their approval uh, once they have the constitution essentially and and they can become a state again. So South Carolina is readmitted in 1868. All of the southern states, in fact, are readmitted um, by 1870 and they're readmitted. Under a government that has a lot of power and authority in the hands of Republicans, in the hands of African-Americans, what happens after that is sort of the, the erosion of political power.
0: And you mentioned that the 1868 Constitution was submitted back to the people for ratification. That's the only Constitution in the history of South Carolina that has ever been
1: put to the people for a vote. Um, That was the most democratic moment, I think, you can point to in South Carolina history, where the people actually get to say yes or no, up or down, whether they want this to be their fundamental law going forward.
0: Well, the last constitutional convention we had in 1895 created the Constitution, and then that was it.
1: That was it, and it was created specifically to disfranchise a lot of the people that arose to power during Reconstruction.
0: Brent, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that This is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Brent Morris of USCB about Reconstruction in South Carolina and the American South. All right, 1868, South Carolina is back in the Union. There's still a military governor, though, over the military district, right?
1: Right. South Carolina creates a constitution which sets up its form of government, which begins the process of of local elections. Um, so they have an election. They um, they elect a carpetbagger government uh, governor. And um,
0: well, now why are we using this term carpet? What what is well
1: what, carpetbagger?
0: What, you know, there are terms that come out about Reconstruction we need to de- define.
1: Carpetbaggers, and and I use the term as a term of endearment. Really, <laughs> um, carpetbaggers were Northerners who had come down into the South during the time of Reconstruction to. Uh, for a variety of reasons, some people liked the climate because it was warmer. other people looked at the south and and identified a power vacuum that they could you know potentially move into. Um, others you know potentially wanted to come down and, and help out the process of reconstruction, really believed in what was going on and some of them came to help help themselves absolutely and there was a lot of helping of themselves going on, and that that'll be a problem that that arises later on a reconstruction that becomes a big problem
0: but what about the locals local whites who decided to help out and reconstruction. What's the term that's frequently tossed out about that? That
1: term is is scalawags. And it's it's not a term that just rolls off your tongue. It kinda leaves this bitter taste in your mouth almost. And I I think the word actually means kind of this small little runty horse. But scalawags were these 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 native born South Carolinians or Southerners um, who then according to most of the rest of the white population of the South, turncoat. They, they, they turned on their, their, their local population. They became Republicans. They became part of the Reconstruction program, turned their back on everything that should have been important to them. And they rose into positions of authority. They became politicians. They became businessmen. Uh, they did benefit in a lot of ways from the, the openings that, that opened up in Reconstruction. But, I mean, the, uh, the Northerners that came into the South and the Southerners who became loyalists essentially after the war um, they were the, a lot of the movers and shakers going forward. All right.
0: Reconstruction's going along, 1860, 1870. What's happening not just in South Carolina now, but in other southern states? What happens to the so-called Reconstruction governments?
1: The Reconstruction governments, as soon as, in a lot of cases, they're put into place, they begin to lose some of that authority. White southerners began to react in a very negative way to the fact that people who were their former property in a lot of cases were now making laws that governed them. It just seemed like the world was turned upside down. Um, It was the the worst nightmare short of a a slave rebellion before the Civil War that a lot of white southerners could imagine. And gradually, white southerners began to reorganize. Um, They were not necessarily part of the political process in the late 1860s, but as they regained the right to vote, as they regained the right to hold office, they did do so. They did sort of reorganize their political parties. And through hook or through crook, they began to try to take back some of the power that they had lost as a result of this radical reconstruction program. And that could take a lot of different forms. White people in the South still held most of the land in the South. And when your tenants were African-Americans, you could put a lot of economic pressure on people to stay away from the polls when election day came. There were other, you know, more, uh, much more notorious means of doing this. The Ku Klux Klan um, is established early in Reconstruction and really, as a, a as a vigilante, violent group, wreaks havoc on a lot of places in the South and is able to, through violent intimidation, keep African Americans from voting and exercising the power that they have.
0: Now, here in South Carolina, the Klan is strongest in what either were before the Civil War, predominantly white districts are barely black majority. In other words, the upstate, you're not you're not seeing much of the Klan in Clarendon and Beaufort and places like that.
1: Specifically because that population was largely majority African-American. I mean, the Klan, the Klan were smart enough at least to know that if you go night riding in Beaufort County, that bad things are going to happen and you are going to be outnumbered by the African-American population. So what the Klan does is, is when they ride in ahead of elections They ride through the towns and the the territories that are, like you said, largely white majority and put a lot of pressure on white Republicans and the small black population that happens to be there. They have uh, the the payoff for their efforts seems to be more.
0: A lot of events between 1870 and 1877, we're talking about the Klan and night riding particularly in the upcountry, but you also begin to have a series of political assassinations.
1: You do. Um, a lot of white Southerners, the Klan, of course, included, never really recognize the legitimacy of Reconstruction governments, especially African Americans holding holding elected positions. Um, so you do have assassinations of of political figures, and to the Klan and to those people who are doing the assassinating, it doesn't matter if someone's been elected or if they're just you know somebody off the street. The the intent is through terror to keep people from the polls. And if they can show that an elected official is no more important than the sharecropper that's renting out your land, um, then that message might be taken home and it might somehow reduce the voting majority that African-Americans have. In South Carolina, there was a 30,000 vote black majority. And white conservatives who were attempting to sort of reorganize and retake political power had to figure out a way to neutralize that black majority, it couldn't be done legally. The only way to be t- for it to be done is, is uh, surreptitiously.
0: Well, you made a very important point that those of us who have studied through military experience insurgency and counterinsurgency, if you cannot maintain law and order, then that is ripe ground for the disintegration
1: of local authority. It is. Um, and that's one of the, the key weapons that conservative whites in the South, especially South Carolina, understood that this Republican Reconstruction government was only as powerful as the U.S. Army that was there to prop it up, essentially. Um, if the Klan could ride when there'd be no consequences, then it was clear that the Republican government couldn't really do anything to control them. If they can't control their state that they supposedly have, have authority over, then who does have control? All right, well, what does President U.S. Grant do about this? President U.S. Grant sometimes does things and sometimes doesn't. Grant's administration starts in 1869 and it lasts all the way until the end of, what a lot of historians say, federal reconstruction in 1877. Um, But Grant comes into office and immediately has a very difficult first, uh, first term because the Klan, when Grant is in office, is riding with impunity through the upcountry of South Carolina. Um, there is a, a bill that's passed in the early 1870s, the Ku Klux Klan Act, and a series of, of bills that are called the Force Acts that essentially uh, federalize um, or make federal crimes certain actions that the Klan is doing. If you, if you interfere in an election, it can become a federal crime and it can be policed by the army. So Grant has the, the legislative ability to send down troops, and he does. Now, what ends up happening is that the Ku Klux Klan Act passes – a lot of people come down and are prosecuted as members of the Klan, over 1,000, I believe, in South Carolina. Um, but there's not too much else that's done. It's, it's so many people that it overwhelms the court system. Um, there's, uh, there's a few more than 100 people, I think, who are put on trial. There are 50-some that are actually put in jail, and they're all out of jail by 1875. Then none of them serve, I believe, more than four years. So it becomes clear after that that even with the federal law in place, even with the potential for federal intervention. There is really no consequence for the type of violence that white conservatives are trying to impose on the South in order to take back their political power.
0: We talk about the Federal Army of Occupation as if there were thousands and thousands of troops stationed in South Carolina. (laughs) It was only a
1: handful. It's it's one of the biggest myths of Reconstruction, and there are lots of those. As soon as a state was readmitted back into the Union, so for South Carolina, 1868, essentially control over their state was turned back over to them. And the army of occupation was moved somewhere else or withdrawn. So in 1868, there were less than 1,000 troops in South Carolina, somewhere around 900 troops. That's over the entire state. There was never at that point, up until the election of 1876, more troops, federal troops in the area. And um, again, one of these myths that has to do with this federal army of occupation is that the compromise that ultimately ends federal support for Reconstruction, um, one of the terms of that compromise is that the troops will be pulled out of South Carolina, well, then it pulled out. They're just moved. They're 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 moved from the state house, down Sumter Street to essentially where the reflecting pool is in front of the Thomas Cooper Library. So they're just moved a little bit, but there are never large numbers of American U.S. Army troops in the South during Reconstruction.
0: Okay, so we're, we're up now to the election of 1876.
1: This is a a monumentous year. It's the centennial of the United States. So 100 years after its after the Declaration of Independence. The election of 1876, a lot of people understand going into it, this is going to be the make-or-break election for Reconstruction, if there was still that much hope. Um, The election, federal election of 1874, a lot of people said was already a referendum on Reconstruction, and Democrats nationally had taken over control of Congress. So 1876 found all but three of the former Confederate states having been redeemed. And, and redeemed meant they'd, they had gone through a process of what Southerners called redemption, of redeeming their states from what they considered the illegitimate Republican African-American rule of Reconstruction. South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana still were under Republican rule. And the election, a lot of people understood that if Republicans can hold on to those states, Reconstruction might hold on for a little bit longer. If those states fall to the Democrats, then essentially that's it. And 1875, there had been an election in Mississippi that kind of set the stage for the next year's election. And Mississippi voters, Democratic white voters, had instituted what they called the Mississippi Plan, which was basically to have as violent of an election season as possible. They said, we're going to win this election peacefully if we can and by force if we must. And by force, they did. Um, South Carolinians looked at what was going on in Mississippi in 1875 and said, we need some of this for us. You know, if it works in Mississippi, why not in South Carolina? So um, people like Alexander Haskell and Martin Witherspoon Gary, um, they organized uh, essentially a way to make 1876 into a an election season that was going to be ruled by violence. Um, Gary and Haskell came up with what they called the, the number one plan of the election, which was a 33-point plan for how to take the election from the Republicans that was distributed to Democratic followers. Um, Some of the points on their 33-point plan made a lot of sense, like, you know, every Democratic voter should be registered. Others, and there were some points that weren't on the official list that were just sort of handed out secretly, every Democratic voter was also given the responsibility to control the vote of at least one black voter, whether by threatening them through violence or making sure that they didn't leave home on Election Day. Um, so they really orchestrated this, what turns out to be fraudulent election, and the end result in 1876 is that you've got, you've got districts in South Carolina that have more votes cast for the Democrats than there were registered voters in the first place. Um, you've got African Americans who were kept from the polls by, you know, huge numbers. Who knows how the election would have gone if tens of thousands of black voters had been able to vote freely, But on Election Day in November of 1876, um, when the returns start to come in, it's very clear that in the three states that still were under Reconstruction governments and Republican control, Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina, both sides claimed victory. Both sides charged the other ones with fraud, and nobody knew what had happened. (laughs) So nationally, this creates an incredible problem. There were two candidates for president, obviously, the uh, Democrat Samuel Tilden from New York and the Republican Rutherford B. Hayes from Ohio. Tilden stood at 184 electoral votes if you didn't count the three uh, southern states that were, that were being contested. 185 votes was what he needed to be named the president. But the flip side of that was that if Rutherford B. Hayes could claim all the electoral votes from all three of those states, then he would become president. So everybody's attention was on those three states, and especially South Carolina. Um, so what to do with those three states, who their electoral vote should go to. Yeah, const- I think, so. I
0: think yeah. we should point out, of mm-hmm. those three states, South Carolina had the largest population.
1: Had the largest population, and it had a black majority still. Yeah. And the 12th Amendment says if there's a presidential election that's not determined by the votes, it goes to Congress. Mm-hmm. So that's what happens. It gets thrown to Congress, and there's an electoral commission that kind of bats it around all the way until the spring of the next year, right up to the, um, right up to the inauguration. But before we get to what happens with the national election, South Carolina finds itself in just an an unbelievable circumstance. Democrats and Republicans both claim victories in most of the state elections, even the governorship. There is a Republican incumbent governor who claims the victory, and then there is Wade Hampton. Daniel Chamberlain. Daniel Chamberlain, who is is a, a Northeasterner. Wade Hampton is the Democratic candidate. He is from a long line of South Carolinians and Southerners. Both sides claim victory. Both sides claim victory. And in a, in a weird sort of turn of events, in November of 1876, both sides, having claimed victory, attempt to take the state house and attempt to actually sit in session in the General Assembly together. There's a Republican Speaker of the House. There's a Democratic Speaker of the House. They both try to gavel their sides in, um, into order. They both debate bills. Um, eventually, the Democrats withdraw, but they both— They both inaugurate a governor. The Republicans nominate, uh, inaugurate Chamberlain. The Democrats inaugurate Hampton. And we've got two governments in South Carolina when the federal government doesn't even have a chief executive yet.
0: But who are the people, the taxpayers, where are they sending their money?
1: They don't send a single cent to Daniel Chamberlain. They send their taxpayer, their money to Wade Hampton. And without a budget without money to actually execute the government, the Republicans essentially have no power whatsoever. I mean, they have, they have right on their side, but might is very often, at least in South Carolina, might makes right. So, everything is hanging. It hinges on the federal, the resolution of the presidential election. The electoral commission, essentially, northerners, southerners, Supreme Court, Supreme Court justices, congressmen get together, They hash out a bargain, some people call it the corrupt bargain, other people call it the great compromise of 1877, but the terms of which are never really officially stated but understood by everybody involved, and one of those is the withdrawal of troops from the remaining uh, three states that are currently at that point or had been under uh, Republican rule. And as we've discussed, it wasn't withdrawing large numbers of troops, it was symbolically just moving them somewhere else to garrisons that were away from the capitals allowing the Republican, Rutherford B. Hayes, to win the election, allowing him to have the electoral votes of those three contested states, and in exchange, essentially ending Reconstruction and turning back control of the South over to what they called Home Rule, allowing control of their local society to be back into the hands of the the appropriate parts of the population, Southerners believed. So the resolution of that presidential election has repercussions in South Carolina of course as well because with the removal of the federal troops that was sort of the the last support of reconstruction in South Carolina there were t- federal troops stationed around the state house that maintained chamberlain and and the republican elected officials in their positions of power without the protection of the federal army chamberlain and the other elected officials resigned their posts i mean when there was no other option they resigned
0: and and so in on what specific date did Chamberlain and those leave office? And we and people mm-hmm. say that is the date that Reconstruction ended.
1: That was April the 10th, 1876, 1877, I'm sorry. Right.
0: April 10th, 1877, when most histories, at least older histories, say Reconstruction ended in South Carolina. Uh, and technically that was true. Mm-hmm. But perhaps the topic for another discussion is there have. been been those who say Reconstruction did not end, and it continued for almost
1: 50 years. Well, that, that, is, that could be a whole other discussion. It, it's an interesting place that we can leave it. Reconstruction, I would argue, did not end. Reconstruction was ended. The violence that white Southerners had to put up to end Reconstruction, you don't have to violently put down a program that's a failure. It will fail under its own weight. Reconstruction was such a success that it could only be brought down through violence. So the defeat of Reconstruction did, in fact, happen in 1876 into 1877. But because it didn't just sort of fail under its own weight, the ideas of Reconstruction lived on. The ideas of equality of citizenship, the ability to vote, the ability to um, to claim the rights of anybody, regardless of color, these are ideas that do fall out of fashion in the South, at least among the, the white, powerful population. But they don't go away. Uh, They remain under the surface. They remain sort of held aloft. The the torch is held, uh, borne by the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of Reconstruction leaders and former slaves. And, you know, they, they, they pick up momentum again in the 20th century. The same issues that are at the front of debate during the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s and 1960s are the same issues that were dealt with during Reconstruction and the fallout from the Civil War. And, in fact, a lot of the issues that remain from the Civil Rights Movement, things that we're dealing with today in American society. Um, who is a citizen? Who can vote? What's the proper response to racial terrorism? Uh, what's, the, what's the appropriate role of the federal government versus the states? I mean, these are Reconstruction questions and they're entirely relevant today. So I would say Reconstruction was not, did not fail. It was defeated. And that Reconstruction remains something very important that everybody should, should have a, a thorough understanding of.
0: Brent, I think that's a good place for us to end this discussion, and we might continue it later. Dr. Brent Morris, director of USCB's Institute for the Study of the Reconstruction Era, thank you so much for being with us today on The Journal.
1: Thanks for having me, Walter.
0: This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. Reconstruction is a period of American history that has been discussed, cussed, analyzed, and on which there are many, many perspectives. And those perspectives have changed over time. One of the things we learned today, and I think it's very important, is that Reconstruction began first in South Carolina in the fall of 1861 and lasted here longer than in any other state. And I might note that given our guest's final comments, there are historians, and Dr. Morris is not alone, who believe that the legacy of Reconstruction is still a part of the political discussion in the United States today. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week
1: for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.